continue our series on God's priceless promises. We're in John chapter 14 today. Life is moving faster and faster. Amen? I don't think it's just my imagination. Change in our lives is accelerating. The anchors that we have moored our lives to seem to be shifting, and it's leading to increased stress and confusion for many of us. Recently, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, recently I was at a grocery store, and as I pulled into the slot, you know, and you go slow and you kind of gauge the cars next to you, in front of you, as I entered into that parking space, the car across from me started backing out at just exactly the same time. It threw me. I slammed on the brakes and said, everything's moving. What do you do? And, and finally, I realized, oh, that car was moving out at exactly the same rate as I was moving into this spot. But I thought the whole world was moving. <laughs> but isn't that like the world we live in? There are things that for years we have counted on, beliefs, truths, that seem now to be moving, and we don't even understand sometimes how imperceptibly the movement is taking place. And it leads, at least in, you know, at that moment, as I'm pulling into that slot, I began to get nervous. What is happening? And it just simply was a car moving, but I wasn't counting on it. Often, as we watch these things move in our lives, it leads to fear. Fear of the future, fear of the unknown, fear which strips us of creativity, strips us of clarity. It causes us to question even our love for other people because we see them moving, not just physically moving, but their beliefs are moving. And for some of us, in certain parts of our lives, it, it paralyzes even the best of us to say, I don't know if I can move forward because I don't know what to count on. We live in stressful and confusing times at best. So, we go looking for peace. We go looking for the absence of fear. We retreat into our shell, into our churches, into our families, or into our jobs, and we say, well, at least I understand those things. And I kind of pull the, the moat around me. I pull up the drawbridge and say, I think I can find peace. But I think often... We are looking for peace in all the wrong places, just like the old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. We look for peace. We look for peace in our material possessions. We have those favorite things around us and it gives us a sense of peace. And if that doesn't work, we exert undue control over others, over our circumstances, saying, if I can just control this, I can have a sense of peace in my own life. 
We throw ourselves into temporary pleasures. We go on power trips. I think a lot of us in the church, we close our eyes to the truth and, and we live in denial. No, it's not changing, it's not changing, it's not changing, it's not, and it is. We wonder what to do. We work hard in each of our lives for the absence of trouble and we call that peace. I'll settle for that. The absence of trouble, crisis. Can I suggest that for all of this, it is very temporary? It's fleeting? It's escapism? It's, it's a sense of false security? See, it's distractions like this that allow us not to focus on the chaos that surrounds each one of our lives. And all of us would like a measure of peace. So, today we're going to look at a passage that promises us two great gifts that will let us live above the stress and the confusion of our world today. So turn with me to John 14. Upper room, starting in verse 25. Let me give you the background. We find Jesus here with his disciples just hours before his betrayal, the trials, his crucifixion and death. And here's what I find so amazing. He knows about all of this that's going to take place. And yet, he has enough sense of purpose. He has a level of peace in his life that he could invest himself in the lives of his followers knowing that at this very moment Judas is making arrangements with his arch enemies. You would think in the midst of this level of stress he's giving up his life. He should be if, if it were me, I would be focused on that reality. And Jesus is not. He's practicing peace. In my life, peace would be evaporating. And yet Jesus is full of peace in the midst of facing the cross. So there's two promises he has in this passage. The first one is the Holy Spirit. And the second one is peace. So let's look at the Holy Spirit or the helper found in verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Stop there. There's three major facts about this coming helper that Jesus wants to present to us. Number one, he's called the helper. Now, we call him the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks there about his role as a helper. He is the promised Holy Spirit designed to help his followers. 
And in other passages, you find that this Holy Spirit takes up residence in each of his believers. In your overflow section, I gave you some additional information about the helper. He is there to provide counsel, correction, hope, comfort, and positive perspective. He trains believers to dedicate themselves, to discard hindrances, and to become obedient like Christ. Second truth or fact is he is sent from the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the third person of the Trinity. And he is sent from heaven for our good and to help us. Thirdly, the third fact is found in the text, his ministries to teach and to remember. He will continue teaching. It says he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now those are the facts, the truths. What are the implications? What are the so what's? Number one, this helper, this third person of the Trinity is a gift from the Father and the Son. Understand, it's a gift. Do we deserve the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? No. Can I earn it? No. Can I merit it? Can I do enough good things that God says, okay, I'll consider it today? No. It's a gift. And therefore, I must understand that it is not based upon me. It's based upon the goodness of our Father and His Son to infuse me with the third person of the Trinity, meant to help me and you. So when I struggle, when life doesn't make sense, guess who I can call on immediately? The Holy Spirit. Do I have to shout to heaven to get him to come into my life? No. He's right here. He is that close to my life. Never forget that. And when you think you are alone in life, when you're facing something so terrible, understand you're not alone. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a gift. Secondly, second implication of this, these two verses, fill in the blank, a big theological word, illumination. Illumination. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Illumination. As the Spirit teaches the followers of Jesus, He helps us understand Scripture. The person who doesn't follow Christ can read this Bible, and yes, he sees the words and he understands it, but what is it about following Jesus? And I read part of the Word of God, and all of a sudden it comes alive to me. That is the ministry of illumination. He makes it real. He teaches us truth, and at the same time, it, he warns us against false understandings and say, you know what, that really doesn't jive. That's the work of the Spirit 
in each of our lives. Thirdly, third implication, if this is true, and it is, then we can count on the absolute reliability of the New Testament. Now, what do I mean by that? We look at, let's say, the Gospel of John or the, the Gospel of Luke. They are long books. The book of Acts. How did they remember all the details? I mean, we think about our own memories. Would you like to say, well, it could be so sharp that it could be inspired in the errant word of God? No way. No way. But these writers of Scripture, these disciples, were given the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, so that they would remember exactly what took place. Now, why can I say that? Well, one, the text says it. Secondly, the Holy Spirit was there. He watched it. He heard it all. So therefore, the New Testament is an accurate record due to the work of the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, fourth implication, comfort. Comfort. Now, we're, Pastor, where do you get that out of the text? Well, he will teach you all things, but this second part, and bring to you remembrance all that I've said to you. See, I think the Holy Spirit brings back to our memories the promises of the Word of God. He brings before our troubled hearts the Word of God, and then He shows us how to apply it in this particular stressful situation. It's like, oh, comfort, encouragement. He does that so we'll grow. He does that to remind us of further application of the word. How many times have you read a passage, 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 all for many, many years, and all of a sudden you read it again, and for the first time you see a new nuance, and you'll say, I never saw that before. Okay, I've done that. I've done that. And you say, now, wait a minute. Why didn't I see that before? Was I just ignorant? No, I didn't need that truth before. I needed it today. I needed it right now. I needed to see inside into the word and the spirit of God illuminates his word in my life. And that brings me comfort. That allows him to help me in these difficult Times. And so the question becomes, what promises have Jesus given you that you count on? Well, this is one of them for me. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a helper. Does anyone here need help this morning? Okay, seven of you. Eight, Barry just finally admitted. Good. Come on. We all need help. We all need encouragement. We all need strength at certain times when we feel weak. And the Holy Spirit has been brought into our lives to be not a force, to be a person who will speak into our lives, 
who will illuminate scripture in such a way that I'll see new and exciting things that I need at that moment. That is a promise that we all need. But Jesus adds a second promise in this passage, starting at verse 27. It is the promise of peace. Let me read the text. Peace I leave with you. Now stop right there. What, what is the context again? He is facing a cruel cross and all that goes with that. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Peace, peace. It's not the absence of turmoil or difficult. It's a calm and settledness in the midst of fear-filled situation. Years ago, there was an art contest. And artists were charged with painting or drawing some kind of picture that would best describe the word peace. And all ages took advantage of that. And the second, the runner-up winner, was a beautiful pasture scene with cows and flowers and a beautiful blue sky and it was just so serene. You could look at it for quite a long time and catch little details in the painting. And that was the runner-up. The picture that won was a picture of a mighty waterfall roaring over the side of this cliff and the picture was skewed just to a bit so you could actually see partly behind the waterfall. And there in the cleft of the rocks with the water flowing over it was a, a niche in the rocks. And in the niche was a nest. And on the nest was a mother bird and again, tucked under the wing of the mother bird was a little chick. That won the prize. Does that not describe often our own lives? There is a waterfall roaring next to us and we're seeing all of this. And yet the sense of safety and security and, and peace that that little chick must feel under the wing of their mother. 
That's peace. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples here. He says in 27a, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now there's different kinds of peace in the scriptures, so I listed those for you. There is a vertical component of peace, and that is called peace with God. Now what does that mean? That means that the sacrifice of his perfect beloved son who shed his blood for each person on earth, I now no longer am an enemy of God. Now, I must accept that free gift of eternal life. I must say to God, I want Jesus' blood to cleanse me. And that's a decision that each person must make for themselves. But when I make that decision, God is no longer angry with me. And there are some believers who walk around and will still say, well, God's upset with me today. Guess what? No, God is never upset with his children. He never is at odds with his family because that peace has been applied. That's vertical. Secondly, there is a horizontal peace. That's called the peace of God. The peace of God that passes all understandings will guard your hearts and your minds. That is between believers in Christ. That's the horizontal. Because I have a relationship with the Father, I now can have a relationship with my brothers and sisters. Thirdly, and this is where we find the text this morning, there is also a personal peace, a personal serenity based upon faith that transcends all of our troubles. And you have experienced at some point in your life, you're going through a very horrendous time, and yet you're sitting there saying, God's in control. In my life, I say, God's on the throne. I don't worry. I don't, I, now, there are times I do worry, so let's just be real here. But there are times when the peace of Jesus overwhelms me. And what's so amazing, this little word in the text that just ministered to my soul, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. That means the peace that allowed him to deal with the cross, to deal with the crowds, to deal with everyone against him, he says, you know what, I would like to invest some of that now in your life. Ooh, it worked for Jesus, right? That means if it worked for him in things that I will never face, it'll work for me. That's my peace I give to you. And again, it's a gift. He gives it to us freely. Contrast, not as the world gives do I give to you. See, the world's peace is built upon security 
It's built upon the idea of no needs unmet. I got it all. I don't need anything else. It's based upon no conflicts, no pain, no demands, no hassles. Where is this world? Give it to me, right? Pain-free, worry-free, have all my needs met. What a la-la land. It will never happen. It will never exist for any length of time because we live in a sin-filled world. We can try all we want. He goes on to say at the end of 27, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What he is saying is the antidote for fear is peace. The antidote for fear is peace. Now, understand what I did not say. I did not say the absence of fear. Can anyone here live without fear in their life? No. But can I suggest that over time, as I allow the peace of Christ to rule in my heart, that fear over time diminishes. That's because I'm growing in my faith in Jesus Christ. It's diminishing. Life is just not predictable. But over time, the antidote for the fear of my life is peace. And as I grow in understanding peace, fear diminishes over time. Verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you if you love me. And the construction of the sentence here says, if you love me and you don't, that had to be a sting. You would have rejoiced, but you didn't because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. To fill in the blank, keep yourself in proper perspective. Now, why do I say that? These disciples were focused on themselves. What was best for Jesus? He had left heaven, took on flesh for eternity, lived a life among us cruel human beings, paid the price for our sins, and now he desires to go back with his father, who he had known unbroken fellowship for eternity. And he gets to say to the disciples, you know what, I'm going back to the father. And they get all wigged out. What about us? What about me? They're feeling sorry for themselves. They're not concerned about what's best for Jesus, but what's best for themselves. And, and they had lost a proper perspective. See, what he was saying, here's the truth. Failure to trust is a failure to love. They didn't trust Jesus. They didn't, they didn't love him like they should. Most of us in this room say we love God. Amen? Amen? Okay. Now, if we say that, that means that we should trust God. 
And some of you are going through difficult situations and struggles, and you're saying, I'm trying, Pastor. I'm trying to trust God. He loves you. He wants the best for you. Trust God. Now, Jesus trusts God. And in the process of trusting the Father, his peace became energized. Verse 29, and now I have told you this before it takes place. He's saying to them, you won't believe what's going to happen in the next couple days here. So that when it does take place, you may believe. Now notice what the text says. It doesn't say now if this takes place. No, it's going to happen. Prepare for it. And it's not going to be pretty. I put in your notes, trusting Jesus when things are not going your way. Things were going to happen in the next couple days that is going to rock their world. But he's telling them ahead of time, not so that they become saved, not so that you may believe salvation-wise, but he is telling them now to strengthen their faith so when these things happen, they'll say, Jesus told us about. Jesus knew about this. Jesus is walking into this with his eyes open, wide open. Jesus wants us to be prepared for this. He's given us his peace. Will we draw on it? It's a choice that each one of us must make. He wanted their faith to grow over time. Verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you. Time is short, guys. For the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. As I meditated and thought about this one verse, Satan desires to counterfeit your peace. See, Jesus says that the enemy, Satan, has no legal claim. He has not done one sin in his entire life. But the enemy loves to bring worldly peace to counterfeit God's peace in your life. I think we forget this. Sometimes I'll ask one of you, you've made a decision. How did you come to this decision? And you have said, not all of you, but many of you, well, I sense God's peace in my life. I'm sorry if that's the only thing you are counting on to confirm that decision, you better confirm it three or four times. Can the enemy duplicate gifts that God wishes to give us? The answer I'll tell you right now is yes. And he tries, and he can. And we have to be very clear, is this Jesus' peace? Or is it the enemy's peace? He counterfeits all the good gifts. He tries to get us off track. And some of you, and this is not a slam, hear this clearly, some of you are very emotionally bent. That's your life. Some of you are very logical, amen? A, B, C, D, put it in logical sequence for me, I get it. And some of you say, man, if I don't feel it, it's not real. And we need both in the body of Christ. 
We need feelers and we need thinkers. Amen? Amen. And you might be married to the opposite of you. And it's done by God's design, his glorious design to put two opposites together. The enemy wishes to counterfeit peace. Be careful. Be careful. Finally, in verse 31, but, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is the only place in the New Testament where it's explicitly asserted that Jesus loved the Father. And I look at his life, I look at the peace that he has to give us, and I learn from this one verse that the means to overcoming fear is obeying the Father. Obeying Father. See, Christ's example demonstrates his love for the Father by being obedient. Jesus took pleasure in obeying the Father. And Jesus is saying in this passage, it's a huge source of peace. Do we live the same way? Or due to our lack of obedience, do we watch our peace evaporate in times of stress and trouble and confusion? Ah, yeah, the, I should be doing this. I, 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 I knew God said I should do this, and I don't. Well, often I lose my peace when I do that. I'll leave it like that. So when you sense your peace waning, where do you put your focus? And, and I'm going to give you five things to focus on. And I know, I'll tell you right now, just, just to ruin it, number five is the preferred answer. But can I be honest? As I looked at my own life in preparing this message, there are times I find myself in the other four areas. And I had to confess that. And I haven't arrived at number five all the time. So just keep that in mind. So when your peace is waning, where do you put your focus? Number one, I put it on self. We revolve our lives and our needs for peace around ourselves. My needs need to be met. My needs to be fulfilled. I am the center of the universe. And don't tell me you've not been there because we've all been there. Number two, circumstances. We think we control our own destiny sometimes. We think and we believe our choices make all the difference. And, and we try to manage life around us to bring peace to our lives until something happens and we feel powerless, helpless, and victimized by the world. And we realize, again, it didn't work. Number three, possessions. Things, maintaining things 
that we use to satisfy it ourselves and, and to provide a level of peace. Oh, this is so, this is just so good. Relationships are too messy. Things are much easier to take care of. Amen? And we surround ourselves with stuff. Level of peace. And then the back quarter panel begins to show rust. Or the blender breaks. Or the roof needs to be replaced. And possessions betray us. Number four, people. Some of you are great people persons. Some of you surround yourself with relationships. Chuck Swindoll made this statement that just arrested me. Relationships are prime candidates for idolatry. Relationships are prime candidates for idolatry. We allow people to overshadow the truth of the word. People's opinions dash us against the rocks. All the people that surround me are sinners and they disappoint and we all struggle together. But that's one way of trying to put it back in your life, refocus. Number five, the Lord. The Lord. He is sovereign over all four of the above mentioned items. A relationship with the Lord. You see, he provides his peace for each one of us. Independent of the people around us, of the possessions we may own, the circumstances we find ourselves in, and even with ourselves. He is the sovereign one. The truth that I want you to kind of grasp today as we call this to a close, would you expect God's peace to calm your heart in troubled times? The Spirit of God is here, and when all of a sudden you sense anxiety going up and fear ratcheting up and confusion getting worse, can you say in your own soul, God, your peace is just made for this moment. I'm counting on your peace to flood my life. I can ask you for it because, remember, it's a promise he loves to deliver on. And remember, it's a gift. So what do I have to do to earn his peace? What do I have to do? Nothing. Nothing. But so often we're in these pickles of situations and we fail to ask God and claim his peace in that moment. We struggle, and the helper wishes to bring it, but we're focused on self, circumstances, possessions, and people, and he tries to break us of that. So expect God's peace to calm your heart in troubled times. Don't be cowardly. 
Count on his peace to be there. Thank him when it shows up. Ask for more when the fear ratchets up. And he's promised to provide. Let's pray.